Hello, and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creator Interviews. I'm Dave Houston, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by the author of the recent comics-slash-novel overlap, Secret Identity. It's, it's a novel. I mean, we can just say that. It's not comics. <laughs> but it's very inclusive of comics as well. Uh, so I don't quite get to say I, I finally read a book without pictures, but it's close. It's real close. Uh, it's Alex Segura. How are you doing, Alex? Good, man. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, definitely. No, I'm excited to talk to you. I've been, I was thinking about reaching out for a while, and then I saw you had a, you were doing some secret identity uh, promo, and I was like, yeah, all right, this is the time. This yeah, is the now time is the time. To, to connect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because um, you, have, you have a super fascinating career in comics. You've written a bunch of stuff now, um, including some DC stuff recently, mm-hmm. Lazarus Planet, Legends Reborn. You got to write a question story. Maybe yeah, that was a thrill. A little. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, all right. So first, though, just for readers who might not be familiar um, again, because it's mildly outside the comics landscape, mm-hmm. Secret Identity. It's this book you wrote of, um, it's a 70s New York kind of crime noir um, suspense book, but it is set inside the comics industry. And it is so loving and passionate about the history of the medium. Uh, so I think, you know, just a strong recommendation for me for both noir fans, but especially if you also have that comics overlap, there's going to be a ton here that you're going to enjoy. So my first question for you, Alex, is you're writing an alternate comics publisher of 1975. Um, how how did you go about deciding how direct to make allusions and comparisons and references when you're doing this? Because it's like half real world and then like half this fiction yeah. that, that is part of the book. That's a great question. And I've actually never been asked that, but it is something that was front of mind. Um, there was a fork in the road when I started the book and my editor was like, look, we have two ways we can go with this. You can either write it as if it happened, which was much more fascinating to me and obviously what we ended up doing, or you can just kind of create this alternate universe mm-hmm. where there are other, there are kind of like Marvel and DC allegories or, you know, stand-ins, but you're, you're, you're given more free reign. And I've always been fascinated as a reader of books um, with fiction that weaves in to history, like historical fiction, like it's, you know, these fictional events happen within the real world. And you can almost if you squint, you can almost believe that they did happen. And so that was really interesting to me. But it presented a lot more, uh, much greater challenges in terms of just research and authenticity. Because if you're going to tell the reader, hey, this, if you kind of suspend your disbelief just a little bit, you can believe this happened, then the onus is on me to make sure it feels like it happened. And that meant, you know, from a personal level, the character Carmen is is a woman who's working in comics. She's a queer woman, and it's the first, you know, it's her story in comics. So, you know, I'm not a woman, uh, and I needed to make sure – and I was also not alive in 1975. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of authenticity I needed to make sure was there. And then also just like the comic book industry from 1975 was very different from the comic book industry of 2023 by you know just awareness just the way comics were made just the perspectives of talent so i had to do it was it really became this really journalistic kind of endeavor like talking to creators and look like you said in the intro i'm i've had a long career in comics in you know behind the the curtain and also as a creator but um that that the benefit of that is that i had a lot of contacts that i could reach out to and say hey do you have a half hour to just talk and kind of go back and forth on what it was like working in comics at that time. And that was super helpful. But then also people who donated their time to read the manuscript and just kind of 
flag it like, hey, that's not the printer, the kind of printer they would have, or mm. this is how you know lettering proofs were routed to the letterer, or this is the kind of ink we used back then. Um, or even little details like this is where most freelancers lived in Manhattan because it was cheaper and worked in comics at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, stuff like that, the volleyball games in Central Park, the poker games that were played with, you know, the Marvel and DC execs at the time. Yeah. Um, those were all, you know, and those are all like little things in the book that maybe you or I would catch as readers because we're comic fans. And But I wanted to have that in there and I wanted it to feel so authentic that even the casual reader might be intrigued enough to look into this stuff and say, Oh, that's cool. Like, I wonder if that really happened. And, yeah. um, I think that, you know, when you're a reader of fiction, it doesn't mean you don't care about facts. It means you probably care even more because you want to, you want to be lulled into this state of alternative history almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it can be a ton of fun. I mean, yeah, definitely going into it. I was, as you started introducing Carmen and the cast of, of the publisher there, I was thinking like, oh, okay, this is our Stanley analog, right? Or, oh, this is, okay, here's Kirby, right? But then you begin to reference those actual players, right? And they're, they exist. Yeah. And, and Carmen is a fan of, of their works and the, and the Silver Age comics that came out of them. So you get kind of that really interesting blend where you get both. Um, before we talk more about that, what was your favorite thing you unearthed? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, some of your contacts. I saw a previous quote, you know, you got to talk to like Louis Simonson, Karen Berger, um, Paul Levitz, yeah. you know, a whole host of like, mm -hmm. you know, comics legends. Um, what was like a, like a factoid or a story that you were, you were thrilled to have them share with you? Um, you know, Paul talked a little bit about the poker games, like not in extreme detail, but he said, you know, these things happened and, and it was a fun way for like the, you know, the editor, you know, it was, it was before Shooter was EIC at Marvel and before Paul obviously stepped into a hot, you know, he was an editor there, but not, you know, a senior editor. And so it was fun to hear about these future, like big time movers and shakers in the industry, like kind of connecting casually just to blow off some steam, um, and the volleyball games were interesting to hear about. I heard uh, Linda Fight, um, who wrote The Cat for Marvel and uh, was a huge, huge help. Um, in, and she was one mm. of the earliest conversations I had. Um, and, um, you know, and Jerry Conway added a lot of unexpected color. Like, I thought, OK, we'll, we'll chat for like 15, 20 minutes and I don't want to waste his time. And we ended up talking for, you know, almost an hour. I had to transcribe the conversation mm. and kind of go through it again, which was super helpful and he talked about just little you know just fun anecdotes about what it was like being a young creator in comics which you know it was such an insular industry then it still is insular but now the awareness is so high like um i did an event on tuesday and i basically said i never thought there would be a time even i a fan i started reading comics late 80s early 90s and even then i never thought there would be a moon knight tv show right. or three ant-man movies or a peacemaker show like this is like uh, we're, we're so rich in terms of awareness of these characters and um in the 70s it was quite the opposite like if you were in the mix and then you were in the industry you were aware but even then it was very much a job that you did without the idea of like maybe this will become something else you know yeah yeah no that is and and that definitely plays a factor in secret identity that's definitely one of the things and we can I, I think we'll keep this relatively spoiler free. Um, there definitely are, you know, there is yeah. there is a a mystery at the heart of this, so I don't want to spoil that for readers who haven't read it. Um, but one thing that happens very nicely by the end of this book is you kind of see, like, okay, it's set in seventy five, but there are some very clear modern parallels, right, to to creator rights and sort of just the state mm -hmm. of the comics media landscape that I think are pretty interesting. Um, when you pick seventy five, uh, was that was that driven more by the state of 
the comics industry at the time where it was kind of helter skelter maybe seen as a little more disposable the creators kind of have this like you know the, the, a lot of them love doing it but it's not a big money maker necessarily at that right. point right or was it sort of just like no i just want to do new york in 75 like what was the bigger influence um i mean i think it was it was it was more about the industry. I mean, I knew I wanted to do New York. I finally felt ready to write a New York novel. And obviously, 75 in New York City, you, you have all the taxi driver vibes and like uh, a very different. I wanted a very different New York and I wanted a very different comic book industry. And so that in terms of comics meant before the direct market really became a huge thing, before the idea of creator owned comics had evolved to the point where big name talent were leaving uh, these companies to kind of go out on their own. Mm-hmm. So more, you know, a very, I wanted to contrast um, the world we live in today where New York, you know, it's a very different New York city. It's just a whole different place. And um, the comic book industry is obviously different. So the people that come to the book with that awareness are going to be surprised to kind of explore this new or different, different era. Yeah. And I thought that would be really interesting. Whereas now the book I'm writing now, which is in the same universe is set in the modern day so it's like you know it's it's the other side of that coin like what happens to a lot of these elements in the modern day and and it kind of gets teed off a little bit without spoiling anything in the epilogue yeah yeah okay so this is this is the sequel to secret identity Mm -hmm. that you're teasing out here so you're you're in the process of writing that there will be a sequel and it's going to be modern day how how directly connected will it be to kind of carmen's story or is it you know spirit more spiritually connected yeah, I've been using the term spiritual sequel, which is not a perfect description, but it's definitely in the same world. Like the themes of secret identity spill over. Like Carmen is a factor. Like she's ever present, but she's not doesn't have the screen time she has in secret identity, where you're you're basically in her head yeah. the whole novel. Yeah. Like there's a new protagonist, uh, and then uh, it, it ties into the links. Um, it's about an artist who once worked in comics and and kind of fell out of the industry and, and decided to go into uh, storyboarding for film and is pulled back because a new company is launched. Um, a new media company is launched looking to exploit the IP of this long lost company called Triumph Comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of their process is creating comic book content to then make into movies and shows. And one of the characters they want to use is this obscure character called the Lynx. Yeah. And Car- uh, the new protagonist, Annie, is grew up reading those comics and felt such identification seeing like a, you know, a Cuban American woman. Cause Carmen is credit. We're going to get in the weeds, but there's a moment where you realize Carmen does get some credit, like for one of the issues. Yeah. And so that resonated with our new protagonist. And so she jumps at the chance, but she finds herself entangled in a much more complicated mystery. And uh, it's about kind of the state of IP and um, asks a lot, you know, books ask questions. Like I don't answer the questions in secret identity, but I hope I pose some questions for people to think about like ownership and um, characters and who, who creates what. Um, But this book, it's a lot about fandom and like how far can your fandom go when the thing you're, obsessing over is complicated and the, and the people making it are complicated. And I think that's something we struggle with a lot today, you know, Um, you know, when, when the creators of things we love are not the people we thought they were, or, you know, it it doesn't delve into that too much, but it it touches on that because I think it's something we all have to grapple with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And it's, it is interesting. I mean, the, the playing with kind of IP and corporations desire to turn that into a profit motive right regardless of of who created that definitely becomes 
like kind of the overarching thematic big bad, <laughs> right? Of yeah, and that's the root of the mystery yeah. because I think obviously if you've read Secret Identity, you know what the origins of the links are. But at the point where we jump into the new novel, nobody knows that it's not public. Okay. Like, and there's a reason why it's not public, even though you think it is, because again, not without. I don't want to spoil too much about Secret Identity, but you leave that book optimistic that things will be fine yeah. and they're not and it's, still <laughs> it's not that happen. easy okay yeah yeah right yeah okay yeah maybe that's some wish fulfillment that, that's like okay no but realistically that would take some time yeah, yeah. um so that let, let's talk about that a little so in throughout the book throughout secret identity you have carmen co-create the legendary links um with this editor mm-hmm. that she works with at triumph comics uh she does the brunt of the work but she's not actually getting creative credit right and you have these interstitials you have these splicing in you know actual sections of the comic um, and then right. at the end of each one, as it goes, it's like creative credit, right? And it's never Carmen's name, of course, until the kind of you know there's this sense of like, oh, when is she going to get it? Right? Is is it going to happen? Right, right. And that's kind of you know part of the mystery. Um, I guess I have two questions. One, uh, I listened to this via audiobook. <laughs> which, oh, great! Which was fun and a good experience. She did, but a I had no idea. Job. Uh, there were actual like comics, right? Like until oh wow, read... yeah, yeah. So like until I read an interview, and I was like, oh, like I missed out on a part of this experience that I would have loved. So I actually went to my library and checked out a copy it and to make sure that oh, like, cool. yeah, yeah, that I could see it. But via audiobook, you you get that sense and you get the sound effects and things, which are very fun. Um, but you don't actually mm-hmm. see it. So at what point did you kind of decide like like we got to actually have the comics here like in the book? I think it was like before I put kind of pen to paper on the story itself, like I knew it would have to have comic. I knew the broad strokes, like I've come to realize that as a writer, I need to like set the table and decorate the room and then the characters start to walk in, you know, like, so I knew I wanted to do a murder mystery in comics. And then I knew that I wanted it to be in the seventies. And then I, and then I kind of got my first inklings that Carmen, who of who Carmen would be. And then Carmen showed up and then, it's, and honestly, the first time the idea entered my mind, not as something I would do, but as something that would be cool to read, um, was like 20-odd years ago in college. I'm reading like Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon, and I was just blown mm. away. I love the book. It's one of my favorite novels, obviously, you know, shocker. But um, I remember reading it and being like, wow, I really want to read those escapist comics. Like, I want to read mm. what these guys are creating in the book. Like, I want to like hop away from the prose and read the comic for a little bit. Um, and obviously Dark Horse eventually did that and they did it really in a meta fun way, like where they treat it like something that actually wove through history. So that was a huge inspiration, but the comics came later and I wanted the comics in the book. And I, th- I just thought that would be, you know, if somebody did that, that would be neat. And then fast forward, I'm thinking of doing this novel, like as my first big new crime novel after doing this PI series and then Star Wars novel, it, it felt like a good turning point. Um, and I wanted it to be like this very cinematic feeling book. And then I thought, well, why don't I just weave the comics in there? And so when I pitched the book to my editor, uh, Zach Wagman at Flatiron, I included a page of the comic plus the pitch and, you know, the excerpt. And and then um, Sandy did it, you know, Sandy Gerald, who does the interiors on, on those comic sequences mm-hmm. and is amazing. Um, and so that was kind of our proof of concept. This is what we want. We want the pros to kind of lead into these sequences of comics and go from there. And um, so it was always part of, I guess my answer is it was always baked into the DNA of the book. Yeah, no, it's super cool. No, and it's very much, you know, for those who are reading it, like it feels like a Mar- like the cat, you know, you reference, right? One of those Marvel series that were tr- actually trying female protagonists with, you know, some female creative influence, right? Which is a super yeah. rarity at the time, of course, which is which is a big part of what Carmen 
is dealing with here, which definitely adds a layer of like, you know, just kind of what is this industry and how far have we actually come in these questions. Um, I mean, there's a ton of metaphor too with Carmen as a character who's a fascinating narrator here where you have the, the um, like sheer amount of identities that she's keeping secret, right? You know, secret identity, of course, is a comics term we're very familiar with, um, but she has cre mm -hmm. credit in creating the links, her sexuality, right? She's a queer woman working in comics in mm -hmm. 1975. Um, what was, what was kind of your thematic goal um, in communication about identities uh, with Carmen as your lead? That's a good question. I think um, I think I just wanted to explore that journey for her creatively. And, and, you know, when I was thinking about the mystery, you have to figure when you're dealing with an amateur PI, amateur detective as your lead, the question you have to ask is like, what is going to push this regular person who like goes to work, goes grocery shopping, is not like a vigilante or anything, what's going to push them to take risks and defy the law and like uh, put themselves in peril. And as a creative person myself, my first thought was my big thought, the one that won me over into doing it was you have to take away her idea. And mm. that's why the links, as you read it, you realize it's not Harvey's idea, her collaborator. He, he comes in and he's like, I have to do this. And one of my favorite moments is when Carmen's like, here you go. And she's got a stack of notebooks and ideas that she's been like jamming on forever. Mm -hmm. And so you set that up and then to have that taken away, um, that's the thing that makes her want to really like reveal herself and like push to have get back this thing, this piece of her, like this piece of her spirit that she has given away in the hopes of like fulfilling her dream. But then that's yanked away. Um, and in terms of her background, I think it was important to me to have a diverse, you know, think in terms of diverse protagonists and show, you know, you know, have a queer woman in the starring role, but I also have to be mindful that, you know, I have to make sure that what I'm portraying is authentic and that I'm not trying to tell a definitive experience. That's not my story to tell, you mm -hmm. know? So I think a lot of that comes from having really reliable authenticity readers that read the manuscript and gave great notes and, um, you know, just being open to, to telling a story with her in the lead. That's meaningful. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. That makes sense. Um, yeah, no, Carmen's a, a really great character. Um, and oh, thanks. See, yeah, no, definitely. I really, really enjoyed her story. Um, and as I, it was the thing, too, where, like, as the story progressed, it's, I, I feel like I'm wondering what your thoughts on this would be. Like, as a reader now, right, this is mm -hmm. some odd years later, it's almost, it's kind of infuriating every time she, like, won't take credit. You know what I mean? Like she has yeah. these meetings with, like she has a, a, you know, regular conversations with the editor in chief and she's like, I can't mention it. I can't mention it. And like, I'm just screaming, like mention it. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. Right? Trust him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how hard was it to kind of get yourself like in that? Cause you, you have to apply the historical and, and then the personal sort of context, right. Of who this character is and what the time frame is, as opposed to now where I don't, I don't know, even then it might not be that easy, but like, it feels like, Oh my gosh, just mention it, you know? Yeah, that's the challenge. I mean, in the modern day, like I would have just, I, a, I probably would not have even gotten myself in that situation. But that's my yeah. privilege too. Like, yeah, right. You know, you know, you have that privilege that you're able to vocalize or or not worry about um, the challenges she faced. And I think, you know, I didn't want uh, Berger, the EIC, you know, who's named after Karen, but is not Karen, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. um, I didn't want him to just feel like another dumb background character who doesn't realize what's going on so there's that little moment later where where he's like kind of wink wink he yeah. knows about it and that yeah. actually plays out a little bit more in the next book but um i wanted her to feel really constrained but also like the pressure gets too much and she has to like 
finally break out and tell people. And there's there's that release when she does tell Detmer, the artist, mm-hmm. you know, she confides in him and, and he's like, I knew it was you. Like, I knew it because Harvey doesn't write this way. And it just felt so different. And um, so she gets those little nudges of validation until she finally has no choice. And, and I wanted to express that because that wouldn't happen today, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But it would definitely happen back then. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. Yeah, it is one of those things where it's like, you really have to get in the mindset of, of historical context. Because even just getting herself in a situation where she's like, in a room with a guy who's been drinking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like jamming out this idea. It's like, well, this is gonna end badly, like clearly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then yeah. it goes in some directions that, that were not expected, which I really appreciated. Um, Good. And it's also the idea of like, what do you do when your dream is dangled in front of you with mm. caveats? Like, do you take it or do you just like, I think she's also coming off like such a low point, like literally earlier in that day, her boss said, stop pitching me stuff. Yeah. Like stop sending me stuff. Like I have another plan for you, which is such a like obnoxious thing to say to anyone. Like I've got a plan for you that you haven't even like, I'm, I'm going to guide your life. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm going to, I've got all these other guys and friends that I have to keep paid. Um, you know, she's already at a low point. So when that offer comes in, it's all the more tempting, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is a mildly offbeat question, but uh, the other yeah. book that I read in in relative proximity to this that is very much about the comics industry and that experience is Alan Moore's Illuminations and the story of oh, uh, what we can know about Thunderman. Have you read that by chance? I have not read it yet. It's definitely flagged on <laughs> – it is on my to-read pile. I'm really curious to read it, but I also didn't want to read it while working on uh, the sequel either. That's probably smart. That's probably smart. It is – what I will say about it, that definitely was connective tissue because you both take very different approaches <laughs> in, your, mm-hmm. in your interpretation of things. Uh, but translating the experience of falling in love with comics, that was something that Alan Moore is, I think, very, very excellent at. And you do a yeah. great job here um, with Carmen as the lead doing as well. And I, I really enjoy those sequences of Carmen describing, you know, her connection with her father, right? And those experiences of just falling in love with comics. Um, I'm curious for you, like, what were those, what were those moments that you were pulling from in your own life? Uh, the very similar to Carmen, I think, I mean, my first comics were an Archie digest, like a Betty and Veronica double digest that I got at the grocery store. And I just remember like being immediately pulled in by the art, you know, comics are just so unique and it sounds simplistic to say, but that mix of language and visuals, like you don't get that to that degree anywhere else. And I was really fascinated and it was a great doorway into reading and learning about, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a Cuban American kid, so my culture you know, tapping into that kind of Americana, which wasn't as present in Miami, which was a very like Cuban community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the world of superheroes, like everyone's always like, is this a good jumping on point? Like I probably had the worst jumping on points as a reader yeah. and I was still pulled in. Like I think my first X-Men comic was that first Claremont Genosha saga, one of the Rick Leonardi <laughs> okay. issues. Yeah. And it's Wolverine powerless. It's Rogue both of them trapped in Genosha and rogue is possessed by Carol Danvers. No one in superhero costumes. Yeah. yeah. And I was just completely enamored. And I was like, what is going on? Or in one of my earlier, my first Avengers issue was a fill in issue or a fill in arc by Ralph Macchio taking over for Roger Stern. After I later learned Stern left in a huff Mm. uh, or left for creative differences. Um, It's got Namor, it's got giant robots and, you know, they're all referencing stuff that happened just before. Yeah. And I had no idea what was going on, but I was hooked. And um, and Spider-Man. So those were like kind of like my earliest comics and um, a Brave and the Bold Batman issue with Aquaman. And those issues are actually great introductions. Like they just pull, they're like 
there's no continuity in those Bob Haney issues. So that was kind of soothing. But my point being is those experiences, like just being immersed, like you get thrown in the deep end. And that to me was fascinating and learning about these characters. And, you know, we didn't have the internet or we didn't have like the resources we have today where now I'm reading a comic. I'll just hop to the web browser and like research a character. Like who is this character that I just saw? I, you know, before you just had to like hope that eventually it would be explained. Right. Um, but there's something really thrilling about that that I think might be lost a little bit, like that sense of like you're exploring this wilderness without a map. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the kid in me was really curious and wanted to just pull that together. And like stuff like the Marvel trading cards were such a huge resource because you couldn't afford, to, I couldn't afford to like buy every comic. And so, but I could buy a, a pack of the Marvel or DC cards and learn about these characters and, and like, learn about them that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like piecing together this puzzle. And that, that's something that I really enjoyed, and, and um, that was my kind of experience early on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. No, I think you're spot on in terms of the that mystery being part of the thrill, you know, definitely, where, yeah. like, the, like, you pick up a comic, and it's like, yeah, there's a ton of stuff it's referencing. Like, continuity is deep. These are decades old. But then, like, my experience was reading that and being like, wait, like like what happened in x-men like what what is what is yeah. juggernaut's deal like i need to i need to learn more about these characters as opposed well, and to also i didn't have a comic it, shop yeah you know exactly you know exactly. i would go to like the ecker drugs near my house and just grab whatever was around and sometimes you'd miss an issue like i was a spider-man reader but mm. if i got there late you know i'd have to settle for like either a lesser spider-man title no offense to anyone but like not mm. amazing like one of the other titles yeah. or you know, there was always like the B level B characters you'd get if your favorites weren't there. So like I was a Spider-Man, X-Men, Batman reader, but sometimes I'd have to read like Avengers West Coast. And that was fine because you, you get what you get, mm-hmm. you know, and what is it? And you, you don't complain. Yeah. But and then comic shops. And then I got a comic shop and that was like eye opening because then I could explore like runs like JLI or Swamp Thing or things that just weren't coming out anymore, but that were seminal and pretty recent. And um that's when I, I guess the doors kind of blew off. Yeah, yeah. You actually read the whole thing in sequence. No, it's it's yeah. definitely definitely a different landscape. I mean, in some ways, it's fantastic, right? You can just binge up. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Now. Yeah. Um, but it's like yeah. I mean, now I can hunt. just rev up my iPad and or Kindle and like read whatever I want at any moment, yeah. or go to a shop and like pick up trades or collections or what have you. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Totally. Okay. So the um, secret identity Carmen's story is going to continue. Um, so we'll look out for that. This is now the book was, I, I do think some congratulations are in order. This was nominated for, what was it? The LA, um, times, uh, book award. Yeah. The LA times book prize, yeah. which is wild and amazing, an amazing honor. And so I'll be out in LA next month and see, see what happens, but it's, you know, just being nominated is huge. That's super cool. Congrats on that. Uh, fingers crossed Thank you. that, uh, that secret identity comes through, but yeah, super cool. Just being a part of that. Yeah, it would be amazing. Again. It's such a great lineup of authors and books. So even just being among them is an award. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, okay, so elsewhere in comics, you have, like you said, you have this like great history here with with a bunch of different publishers and mediums. I guess mm-hmm. most recently, I'll ask you. Know, you got to write a question story, um, and Renee Montoya. Yeah. Uh, I think if you've read Secret Identity and you get to know Carmen, you can see like how well suited <laughs> like, yeah. you must be. Like clearly, you must yeah. have some affinity. Um, how exciting was I that? Love, and how I did love... that start? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some characters that just resonate with you and then there are characters that you identify with. And so as a kid, like there's a handful of them. Like for me, it's like Miguel O'Hara, Spidey 2099, Mm -hmm. that realization, like, oh my God, Spider-Man can be like me, like this Latinx character. Mm -hmm. And also seeing Renee in Batman, the animated series, the cartoon, I'm like, oh, okay. There's like a Latin woman 
and you know it's so cool that she's like part of the gcpd and then obviously the definitive gotham central stuff that rucka brubaker and lark and everyone involved did kind of creating and defining that character in comics yeah um and one of my favorite writers full stop is denny o'neill and greg rucka like these you know these these guys who who their their knack is not only telling great action stories but digging deep into the characters and and the philosophy of the characters so you know, I have a passion for Renee Montoya as a character, but also for the question. And so when that came up, you know, the opportunity to write a question story just felt so perfect. And literally, like, she's one of my favorite characters in the DC universe. And so I wanted to do justice to the character. It's a short story, so you, you can't really, like, dig too, too deep. But sure. I wanted to really, like, um, it's a love letter to her duality. Like, you know, she's got this role as commissioner, but she also understands, like, she has this role as a question and sometimes that comes into play when she doesn't want to put her, her team at risk. And so, you know, it was, it was a really fun book. I mean, Clayton Henry is just an amazing artist. I, I I'm, I'm still like amazed that we lucked in on luck, lucked into having him like do this short story because, you know, he just, he's one of my favorites, like, uh, and he's got such a clean line, but he's also, he's a fantastic storyteller. So just the way he does expressions and, and um, designs the page is, it was really just amazing to see. Cool. Cool. No, people should check that out. It's a good story, and I think uh, I think a lot of fans are like regularly like feel starved for question content. You know, it feels like it's yeah, like it's it feels like a little further between you know runs definitely than you'd like. I actually went back and read the um the O'Neill Cowan stuff uh, within the last so like, year and a half for the first time, and oh my gosh, it's good. Like it holds up so well yeah. too. Um, it's a really really fun one if people haven't read that. Yeah, it's just a great like, or maybe fun one's the wrong way to describe it, but it's, it's definitely it's not read. light. Yeah, yeah, it's dark and it's uh, it's about the exploration of character and like the inner workings of his spirit, and it's just fascinating. Like, it's just like such a different kind of book, mm-hmm. and yeah, the art is really great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you mentioned there Spider Man twenty ninety nine and the you know the Latin um, Spider Man connections. What can you tell us about the upcoming Aranya and Spider Man twenty ninety nine book that you're going to be doing? Yeah, it's coming out May second. It's a YA novel, uh, prose book. No, you know, there's it's got a fantastic cover, uh, but no, no comic sequences inside. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's a story about you know this unexpected friendship between Aranya Anya Corazon, who's a um, Brooklyn teenager, and we kind of catch her at the beginning of her career that's the benefit of writing these novels. You're not totally hampered by continuity. Not that you know it's you're not. You know, I don't have to tell the current, though I have told stories of the current Aranya in Edge of Spider-Verse. This is a much more, much younger Anya as she's starting out. And it's really about these two heroes kind of learning from each other. You know, obviously there's the big universe-threatening stuff going on and the time travel and, the you know, the action. But the big challenge is how does she learn to be a superhero from this veteran? And how does this veteran, Miguel, learn to rekindle that passion for being a hero from this rookie basically. And um, so their dynamic was really fun to write and their relationship and how they kind of become friends. And, and it, by the end of it, I was almost like, like, I really want to just keep writing this story because I really want to explore their relationship and their mentorship. And, um, you know, you, you find Miguel in a very different place, kind of the rough continuity I had in my mind is like right after the Peter David stuff ended, which to me was so influential, like that era, like, um, and he's at a really low point in his life and she really reactivates his love of being Spidey. Mm. And, um, so it's a lot of emotional stuff happening while, you know, punching bad guys and dealing with time travel. And, um, and she's thrust into the future with her powers on the Fritz. And so her first thought is like, let me find the Spider-Man of this time. 
but the Spider-Man she finds is not the helpful, like Peter Parker that she knows from her era. It's a kind of grouchy, um, quote unquote, semi-retired superhero. And he, he wants nothing to do with it. He just wants to get her back to her time and, and, and not have a problem. But as, as he, um, deals with her more he realizes he has to step back into the role and that's that's what it's about it's about you know we can all learn from each other in different eras it's not just him teaching her it's she's teaching him just as much cool cool no that's awesome i i feel like with miguel we often get to he's so often just caught up in like well it's a time travel story so i I guess here we'll have miguel you don't you don't necessarily get to see him in a mentor role or or see like what's actually going on with that character <laughs> at this point in time. Yeah, no, I love him. I think yeah. he's such a fascinating character and such a great contrast to the traditional like Spidey. Like mm-hmm. his wisecracks happen when he's Miguel and he's like deadly serious like as Spider-Man. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of like you know what Peter David and Rick Leonardi did in creating him was really interesting and it works so well. I think of the 2099 books, that's the one that resonates the most in yeah. terms of like having lasting power and people love that. That look is so iconic too. Yeah, no, right. It's it's the design is fantastic. I'm excited to see what they do with the character in um in the Into the Spider Verse, which should be coming out. You know, I think a similar time frame, which hopefully gives your book yeah a, synergy a nice bump as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so. that could work out nicely. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, all right, this is just like a yes or no, basically. What's your favorite sure. Archie work you did? Uh, Archie meeting Kiss, the Ramones, or forming the Archies? I mean, I love them all, obviously, but I think the Archies was fun because I got to work with Matt Rosenberg and Joe Eisma, who are two dear friends of mine, but also mm-hmm. because it's like a low key exploration of failure, like, you yeah. know, with the, with the <laughs> yeah. color and magic of Archie. And I, it was my first ongoing, se- my first, you know, like ongoing comic series, even though it only ran for, you know, one sh- a double size one shot and eight issues, but that's a nice chunk of story. Yeah. And so we got to really explore, you know, underneath the cameos, underneath the music stuff, it's a story about what happens when you don't succeed. You have your dreams, you don't succeed, like what then? And I think that's a really resonant message. Um, and working with Matt and Joe was really just a thrill. And, you know, I yeah, it has a real soft spot for me, that that story. Yeah, if you like Archie Comics and you haven't checked this out, definitely as, as someone who very much connects to the idea of having a very bad garage band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah, and it's so, also like it's a love letter to the Archie universe. So you have like Josie and the Pussycats show up, like Bingo Wilkin shows up, like uh, you get to see like where where little Jinx ended up, you know, like it's it's just a fun yeah. little continuity trip as well, so. Nice, nice. Uh, so, all right, elsewhere, you know, you've got a handful of series, but you have a couple good Comixology originals, um, mm-hmm. including The Black Ghost. Uh, wh- what do you make of, of everything happening with Comixology? Like, do you still feel, not, not that I want you to, like, badmouth the publisher, mm-hmm. but just in terms of the ownership, right, and the struggles that the platform has had, like, do you still feel good about, you know, having, like, comics through Comixology originals and, like, kind of the state of things there? I mean, I can't speak to the big corporate stuff going on. It's just not, I'm not directly involved in that. But in terms of like the com- the books we have with them, they still continue to be supportive and, and, and uh, you know, promoting and getting the word out on these books. I think the relationship with Dark Horse is really smart yeah. in terms of like, if you're not a digital person, you know that eventually these books will be in print and distributed to traditional channels like comic shops and bookstores. And so that's been great. You know, I, I could to get to see the book out in the wild and, and it's like a whole different like release day. Like today, uh, not today when you're listening to it, but today uh, the audio version came out, which is something like we did in partnership with Graphic Audio. So mm. I feel like the Black Ghost is accessible to people, whether you're a digital reader, a print reader, an audio reader, which is like 
amazing. You know, comics are a visual medium, but now there's ways to translate them into audio. So I, you know, I hope that that's how things will continue in terms of comicsology originals. And, and, you know, I'm still like kind of in wait and see mode. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now it does seem like you're pretty, uh, you're pretty tapped into like different opportunities, like experimental stuff, you know, with comics, mm-hmm. right? These audio things that are, you got Zest World, you know, which is yeah. a digital publisher. Are these things that you're seeking out or is it sort of just like, well, writing opportunity, like let's go for it. I think it's a little bit of both. Like, yeah, I, I think there was a time, I, you know, the direct market is amazing and I think it's a great channel to fans existing fans of comics i think but i think there's we've got to figure out what the algorithm is to tap into people who don't know to go to comic shop you know and um i'm not saying zest world is the answer like i think it's a cool way to connect with readers that maybe don't read comics the traditional way i think Mm -hmm. stuff like um virtual uh vertical scroll stuff like webtoon and tapas and some of the stuff that marvel unlimited is doing like i just did an avengers story with them um that's vertical scroll. And I think that's a, a way to tap into people who read stuff on their phones. But I think there's also, yeah. there was also a direct line to younger readers that we now see through bookstores mainly. But when I was a kid, it was the newsstand. Like you would mm-hmm. be with your parents, like before you could roam around by yourself and buy stuff on your own, you would be with your parents at the grocery store or at the pharmacy or what have you. And you would see comics and that was how you would kind of get reeled in. And I think for a long time we lost that. And the expectation was that fans would seek out comic shops. And I think um, we're seeing this huge pop culture awareness with comics in movies and television. And I think the connective tissue between those things and the source material needs to be a little stronger. And I don't claim to have the answer. Hmm. You know, I think there's just it's on us as creators and as publishers to kind of try out different things to make that stronger. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Not to no, go I, on a rant about, you know, it's just like, no, 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 um, it's good. Yeah. It's, in, it's interesting. No, I've always said like, like when you're in the weeds and like, once you become part of this comics culture, you know, comic shops seem supernatural, but it's like, you have to remember what it's like to not have been there and how weird an experience it is <laughs> to like go yeah. to a comic shop for the first time and try to figure out, you know, we talked about the kind of the fun of like, the mystery of it all and but it's and, daunting and, too but it's also confusing yeah it is you yeah. know it's, it's intimidating um and obviously and i think we're seeing successes on... yeah, yeah i don't mean ahead. sorry to go interrupt ahead. you i think we see great successes with you know ya content and middle grade content that are comics obviously like comics are a medium not a genre so mm-hmm. you know just because it's not a superhero book doesn't mean it's not a comic book um are having great success in bookstores and vertical scroll comics so it's like i think for the traditional like superhero market, like how do you tap into those things and maintain your connection to the direct market? That's a challenge I think uh, publishers are facing. Yeah. And I don't have the answer, but I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, right. No, and you, we'll see some strides there. I mean, I do think the YA market, it's certainly stronger now than mm-hmm. it was um, even a decade ago, right? And that's not I mean, even talking about manga readers, which is oh like gosh, a whole yeah. different kind of market that is like, right. prove it's hugely successful in, in reaching millions of people. And so... You know, I think that's you have to kind of figure out what what is the algorithm there. Yeah, yeah, right, totally. No, it's it's that funny. Thing. Like I go to the library a ton, and mm-hmm. uh, one thing I've noticed for decades, right, is like the library section of manga is like bloated, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just like overwhelming. And for like a long time, I was just like, oh, okay, that's not for me. But then like it finally dawned on me. It's like, wait, but that means it's for like basically everyone else because I'm the weirdo. Yeah. I'm the one walking over to the <laughs> to the graphic. Yeah, I mean, it's different aren't... different audiences, and I, yeah. I think yeah, I think. We have to stop looking at it. This is the general way, not just, you know, it's just like, it's not just our experiences that define the marketplace because there's a lot of comics being read outside of our personal experience. Like, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
All right, cool. Um, how, how do you feel about sort of just, I mean, we're talking about it, like how do you feel about just the state of things, right, with comics? Like like you feel like it's in a healthy place? Like you want to see some big changes? Like where, you know, what are your thoughts there? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a huge question. It's a, um, yeah. I think um, I think we're seeing, you know, I think, yeah, it's just hard to think about it in such a grand scheme, but I think things can always be better. I think um, I think it's challenging for creators to find homes for their work. Um, I think it's it, there's a, it's a good market in terms of getting your ideas out, but um, in terms of ownership and media control, it's challenging because you know the the hard nut to crack is like making a profit just on publishing, and not a lot of companies do that. I think a lot of companies want you know, a slice of media, a slice of the IP, a slice of this or a slice of that, mm. because that's where the big money is. You know, if something gets adapted and turned into a TV show or a movie, then everyone benefits. But, um, you know, image is a great spot, you know, to just get, you know, your story out there and have don't have that kind of rights issue. But um, I think in terms of comics as a whole, business is better. I think the pandemic was was really scary at first, like when, mm -hmm. you know, when Diamond shut down and, and just, you know, the distributor issues were happening, that was really a panic moment. And obviously adding to the greater panic of the pandemic. But um, I think now, I think the numbers are getting better. I think in terms of sales, I think they can always be better. And I think awareness is the big challenge sometimes. You know, how do you cut through the noise when you have a book and an yeah. idea when, you know, cut through the noise of social media, cut through the noise of the media itself. Like what, what is going to resonate? That's the always the challenge. I have a public publicity and marketing background. So my thought is always like, how do I cut through this? Like what's the, what's the press hit or awareness that's going to really resonate with people? Because now everyone's got a sub stack. Everyone's got a newsletter. Everyone's like hammering, banging the drum nonstop all day long. Yeah. So what do you do to really like catch people's attention? And, and I think that's, that's what we're all kind of struggling with. Right. Right. No, it's, it's very fractured. I think in terms of like also without seeming like really obnoxious, you know, yeah, like it's yeah, hard right. to like promote yourself without, you know, that's why my default is always like, well, let me also plug other people as well. And like really try to be a good, you know, citizen in terms of like promoting my friend's books or books that I'm reading and enjoying yeah. because that's the conversation. So social media is not about just promoting yourself. It's like having a conversation like Twitter is like what that really obnoxious, loud, crowded bar like right. it is. But you can make it fun, and that's kind of what I try yeah, to do. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, all right, so as far as what's next for you, uh, what do you have coming up that you want to make sure people know about? Um, what are your focuses going forward? Yeah, I mean, I've got some stuff cooking that I can't announce yet, but I've a Spider-Man, uh, Aranya T Spidey 2099, Dark Tomorrow comes out in May. I'm working on uh, the next Secret Identity book, uh, tentatively titled Alter Ego, which hopefully comes out next year. Cool. I've got a sci-fi novel co-written with Rob Hart that's uh, coming out next year or the following. Um, and yeah, um, The Awakened and the Lynx comics are coming out. Uh, they're being serialized on Zestworld, so you can subscribe to my newsletter uh, and get those early or, you know, just wait a minute and you'll you'll see them for free. But it's um, they're all being serialized there, uh, a few pages, a chunk of pages every mm -hmm. month. Um, I think that's the big stuff. I'm sure I'm always forgetting something because there's just a lot going on. And um, the Dusk Kickstarter is finally being resolved or finished. Like the work is done. We're designing the book and getting those those copies out there to the backers. So that's okay. exciting. Good, good. I'm sure they'll be excited for that. That's always the most exciting exciting yeah. stage of the Kickstarter. I'm usually every Kickstarter yeah, when you're I do, done. I'm like <laughs> I'm like surprised when I actually get it. You know, because <laughs> it's like you go through that thing of like not not that I actually got it so much as I just forgot about it. You know, by the time like it's done. Yeah, you forget yeah. about it, but you know, I just, 
I just want to make sure people get their stuff. Like it was just, it, we did the book during the pandemic and there was, that was a particularly fraught time. Um, and you know, stuff gets delayed, like stuff just gets derailed, like, and also printing problems and like paper stuff. And, but the book is done. We're excited. And so it was a good. uniquely frustrating, uh, couple of years in many ways, but, but certainly oh, yeah. shipping and, and publishing <laughs> and, and all of that. For sure. Yeah. Well, Alex, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Um, thanks, we'll man. look for all this work again. We'll include links to the, to the stuff in the show notes, but I mean, I, you know, at a minimum, everybody check out secret identity. Um, and, and we'll include some links here. In Thank the show you. Notes. So thanks so much for joining. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.